for the ones that are not familiar with you and who you are and what you do, can you tell us, please? Sure. My name is Paul Berg. I'm co-founder and CEO of Sabler Labs. We're building a money streaming protocol on Ethereum called Sabler with a focus on token investing because the way Sabler works, you make a one-time deposit and then every second it's streamed by the second. Outside of Sabler, I've been involved in crypto for many years, I think five years now. I've been doing various kinds of Ethereum developments. So I joined the space in 2018 and worked with various startups along the way. And now I'm a founder building this project. Also in my free time, I'm a big longevity junkie. That's my main hobby, basically trying to extend this little life we have on earth to the fullest possible. And yeah, I'm experimenting of all kinds of techniques, molecules, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean to that. And you mentioned that you've been a developer, a Solidity developer for five years. In my opinion, you are one of the best developers out there. I oh, want to know why thank you. did you, why and how did you become a Solidity developer? By the way, thank you for the kind words. That, that's really kind. I spent a lot of time on this craft. It's nice to hear that somebody appreciates my work. I was just, I was studying in London first year and I just naturally did stumble upon Ethereum. One of my uni colleagues got me to this Ethereum meetup event where they talked about Ethereum, smart contracts, and they showed Truffle and whatever. And I was just like naturally driven towards that. Six months later, I dropped out to <laughs> to try to build some startups, they all failed. They were like idea stages, but they all failed. Anyway, I joined some entrepreneurial circles in London and then I got a job at Aztec Protocol. And yeah, it was all like a natural process for me. I just stumbled upon the technology and it was so cool that I decided to dedicate my life to that, quitting my university degree. I, I was studying electrical engineering. And I said, crypto looks too cool and awesome. And I, I was drawn not just by the many people are drawn about the tokens and the prices. Yeah, I also made some investments, but it was really the tech. I, I just thought smart contracts are cool. Like I'm this random guy, Starbucks in London, and I can build my own mini bank with a multisig. Yeah, so that was it. Yeah, I think for everyone, the first time you deploy a contract and you realize what it can do, it immediately is like, this shit is so cool. And what were your motivations for starting Sablier? Because there's all kinds of protocols that you could have started to build. Why did you decide to build a token streaming protocol to start with? Were there other ideas in your mind at the time? I looked at this presentation by Andreas Antonopoulos. I think it was held in 2016 or something. He was obviously talking about Bitcoin at the time and how and the title of the talk was Money Streaming on Lightning Network, I think. And he was basically describing what we're doing now at Savior, but on the Bitcoin Lightning Network of how you create these payment channels and you can stream by the second and whatever. And I just looked at that design he proposed with the Lightning Network and said, this is not scalable. And, but I love the idea. Like the idea was cool. Why do payments need to be, when you think about blockchains, they're all real-time. They all settle by the block. Why do we still pay people every month or in the US every two weeks? There's actually, if you drill down into this question and you ask yourself why, there's no good answer. It's just that this is how things are because this is what the tech, the Web 2, Web 
the uh, physical world, the mid space enabled us. Like in physical space, you can't stream t coins to people. So we aggregated around some standards, monthly based, two weekly, bi weekly. And I saw it basically, I saw it as an opportunity. And I saw nobody doing it in Ethereum. And we, I built the first, but I was then still working at Aztec. Then I quit the job to become a full-time founder, raised a little grant, a small grant from various people in the ecosystem. And yeah, just got going. We ended up in many different places, but we're still a company today, an independent company, and we're still building. We just launched our feature actually two weeks ago. And yeah, that was the main motivation. Just, I saw it as an opportunity and I saw this as inspiring talk by Andrea and Santana Falls, but also I was like a big DeFi and I still am a big DeFi user myself. And I was getting paid in fiat. And when I was my first job at Aztec and what I was doing, I was like putting 80% on Coinbase. I, why can't I be paid directly in crypto, right? Like we need infrastructure for this. We need payments protocols on, on, on Ethereum because there were basically none in 2018, 2019. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so you saw this opportunity, you decided to build it, started building it. Can you talk about what it is and what implications yeah. it has? Yes, uh, absolutely. Let's first explain in brief how Sabir works and then the implications for the financial ecosystem. We are the pioneers of what we call lockup streaming. Lockup streaming is a type of streaming whereby the sender makes a one-time deposit in our contract and then every second the deposit gets streamed a small amount gets streamed to the recipient. The recipient receives a unique payment link to our website where they can track their, basically their earnings over the time. They have to make a withdrawal when they want to actually spend it and do something with that, but it's all theirs. The stream cannot be canceled in any, in, in any way. So that's the basic design, which used to be the case in V1. In V2, we took it to the next level by adding quite a few features on top of this core model. We have NFTs now. So every stream is an ERC721 NFT, which makes Sableer integratable with DeFi. And one other big feature is what we call a uh, lockup dynamic, which is this contract, smart contract, which enables non-linear streaming. And as far as I know, we are the first project ever to ship something like this, not just in crypto, but like entire world. This notion of non-automated, non-linear streaming over time is a new idea. And we're quite proud of that. The use case for such a payment model is a new kind of incentive structures. For example, you set up an exponential stream that has a total duration of four years and it's streamed to one of your employees or DAO contributors. And the way it works is that the stream gets, it gives exponentially more tokens, the more time passes. So you incentivize long-term collaboration with your team and so on and so forth. So that's how it works. Now, in terms of implications, one of them is actually what I just said before that lockup dynamic and V2 in particular, they open a new design space for incentive schemes. If you think about the traditional, like how vesting works with startups is that you have some lawyers and the design space is constrained by first, how much capital you can allocate your lawyers. And secondly, what the 
jurisdiction under which you are operating what what legal templates you have basically everybody runs on like legal templates you just use a template change, put your company name and that's it lockup dynamic completely knocks out that up, up out of the park because it makes introduces a permissionless system that lets everybody suppose you have equity on chain then you just call a function and you can choose our vision is to have this app store of like non-linear curves where say, I want this incentive plan where the, the employee has to stay for two, three, four, five years, or I want these bonuses, or I want in, in, it's all automated. You don't have to do any manual payments over time. You don't have to track it. It's all smart contracts and that's it. You can still have a legal contract attached to that, but the actual payment, the actual distribution is fully automated on chain and so forth. That's one implication. The other implication with V2 is with, with the NFTs. This opens up a new kind of financial world for borrowing against future income or also using your vested assets as collateral without claiming them. And this is good for tax efficiency because you, when, so when a Sabre stream V2 stream is created, there's an NFT, which is minted to the recipient. And then the recipient can just never claim the actual tokens. They can leave them in Sabre and then, you know, they put the NFT into some lending protocol like Staria. And assuming there's a market for that. And I don't see any reason why people will not create markets for this because it's I mean, our NFTs are not just artwork. Yeah. We do actually have uh, an hourglass, which looks a bit like this like a fully on-chain SVG, but it's not just artwork, it's actual financial assets. It's ARC20 tokens, which can represent anything. If, if you have a governance token that is being streamed in the NFT, then some time has passed, then you actually, the lending protocol actually controls some ARC20 tokens, which can be used for voting, can be used as collateral, and not just like future earnings, but like current earnings so far, those can be, those are guaranteed. And the use case there is like tax efficiency because you can borrow USDC against your vested assets. And we actually had this request in V1. People wanted to move the tokens around, do something with them. And V1 didn't have this capability, but like now we have it. And so this is one dimension with the NFTs. The other dimension is, this is a bit more far-fetched, but it, it is doable in principle. The idea of trading NFTs. And this basically means it's almost like bonds in a way or annuity. The idea being, you suppose you have a 10,000 USDC stream and it's uncancelable in V2 streams can be made non-cancelable. That means that there one year has to pass for the entire 10,000 USDC to be streamed. Then somebody can come in and say, Hey, I want to give you, I don't know, 9,000, 8,000 USDC to give you the stream now. So in a way, it's, it's basically bonds. Just say at this future point in time, I, I will receive these tokens. Although it's a different kind of bond because it's a continuous bond, right? Like typically bonds only pay monthly or at the time of expiration. In our case, it's like a continuous by the second. So I'm super excited to see how people will price them. I have no idea how people will price them. Probably we need to do some research on like work with like academics and whatnot to to explain how a pricing algorithm could work for this. Uh, in any case, yeah, those are the implications for just make 
payments and earnings more composable with DeFi and enable new incentive structures? Yeah, I think these are very cool specific use cases that anyone can tap into. And at its core, it's basically money per second. So you, you don't get paid a year, you don't get paid a month, you get paid per second. And in my head, that is like a liquidity on money. And I think what's going to come from that are applications that you can't really assume now. It just opens up this new inflow of me getting my stream and not in V2, but in the future, I hope, using my stream to create all the streams. And it's just a continuity of payments. And that makes things a lot more fluid. And I think that's going to have impacts on a macro perspective that it's hard to foresee at the moment. What is the vision for the future of Sablier? What, what do you guys see coming ahead? To comment on that chaining of streams, so I call it chaining, that's absolutely on the roadmap. We don't have a very fleshed out design at the moment. I can't say much about it, but that's absolutely one of the long-term to-dos, this idea of composing streams. So if you have... Again, as it said, in V2, this cannot be done, but the idea would be long-term, you have your income as salary, you say 5% goes here, 5% goes here, 10% goes there. And yeah, that would be a much more liquid economy. And yeah, since this whole notion of streaming is a new money Lego, and it was invented in Web3, we deserve credit for this, uh, all of us. It, 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 there are competitors for Sabre, of course, and all, all of us deserve this because I don't see anyone in Web2 pushing this, pushing the envelope further. They're all just, like the way I view Web2 payments and payroll is that they all try to fit the existing regulations. Very rarely you see a Web2 payments company do something innovative that is not already regulated. Whereas in Web3, because my contracts as a whole are not very much regulated, we can innovate as much as we want. And that's a benefit we have. But anyway, what I would say on this topic is that generally there is, in, in the whole world, there is what I want to call a discrete payment bias. When, when you think about somebody, when you think about the word payment, people assume that it's a one-time event or it's a discrete point in time. Really what we are, our guess, our idea here, our hope is that continuous finance, which is the concept of like, when you pay somebody, the payment function can actually be continuous, right? Like one second you're paid, the next second you're also paid by contracts, but autonomously, no human intervention. So when you view finance like through that lens, a lot of the current Web2 financial infrastructure just simply doesn't make any sense. For example, payday loans, right? If you are always waiting for your employer to pay you so that you can buy food, with streaming, you literally don't have that problem because every day, every second you receive something, you can claim it and you can go to the restaurant or whatever and supermarket can buy it. There, are, there will of course be some extreme cases where even those people who are streaming like paid in real time will just dump, spend it continuously. But I think that those are like extreme cases. And for like most people, if they could be paid more rapidly, then they wouldn't have to resort to 20, 30, 40% API loans. And they wouldn't have to even have credit in a way because the stream itself is like what gives them the guarantee of payment. 
so yeah, basically that's that that's the thread where um, that I'm I'm envisioning here that uh, we will just make the economy as a whole more efficient, more liquid, and even fairer, especially in the case of payroll. But if we look at even like things like vesting, vesting today is uh, typically uh, gr uh, gradated by the month. However, people are working every day, right? There are cases when the vesting ends on Sunday, but people still continue to work two or three weeks later. So the point of streaming is to just make finance continuous, just like time is continuous and match them in the most accurate way possible. Yeah, I think that it's a really good take on just how money should be. Everyone grew up with this notion that money is a one-time event. You get paid and that's it. And it never comes up as a fluid event of streaming by the second. And to get to the point where the entire economy runs streams, there's quite a few steps to be made, but I don't see any, there, there's no law of physics <laughs> that, that, that prevents us from getting there. It's really just a question of building the right software, building a good user experience, and also an issue of accounting standards. We need accounting standards for streaming. So what I have in my head now, and I've been talking to various companies in the space that provide accounting to, to try to work with them on this. The idea would be, uh, accounting today is also static. If you look at your accounting books today, and you don't make any one-time payment until tomorrow, then the report will remain the same. With streaming, what you have to do, and it's really not that hard, it's only a question of agreeing upon a shared accounting system. The idea would be you look at your existing static balances as they are, but you also introduce dynamic balances. And there, you, you, what you simply do is you just go through all the known streaming protocols with Ethereum, you look at Tibur, you look at maybe Superfluid and our competitors, and you say, okay, between time A and time B, how much was streamed in this protocol? And you just add those balances together. And in your accounting, you just show a consolidated total amount. And that, that's how in principle it could work. It's really not, not for science. It's just a question of providing the service to users. And it's going to eventually be done by somebody somehow. Yeah, yeah. And that brings me to a good point that I was trying to make before this interview with myself about the cons of streaming. What are the, the negative sides? What does streaming doesn't have that discrete payments have? It's a good point. I think the biggest one today is really this like lack of integration with accounting and compliance. You cannot get credit score with. This is more like a crypto pay, like crypto problem in general, not not necessarily streaming. But when you add in a streaming, that certainly makes it more complicated to account for what is your credit worthiness. So there is this point, but as I've said before, this is doable and solvable with time. What I think will be problems with streaming forever are things like so for the recipient, I think. It's a no brainer. Like I think everybody would like to be paid more often, more, like more quickly. So I, I would say that the problem mostly centers on the sender. What we have seen in practice is people say, oh, but I want capital efficiency. I don't want to, I don't want to pay somebody upfront. I want to pay them like in 30 days as it is now. Our, our response is, yeah, sure. But like, 
your employees working with you for you every single day since you're like they're like loaning you their sweat and tears until you you put your assets to work and earn a yield while they sweat that's one dimension it's solvable by using vault tokens right you can create like an erc4626 vault where where the interest remains to the sender while the stream continues the other problem which i would say is it's a bit more difficult to solve but again i think accounting will will an accounting standard will help is this notion of mental transaction costs mental accounting costs so when somebody says i'm gonna pay you at the end of the month it's easier to reason about that to say yeah okay i, I know what went to happen versus just i'm being paid every second that might give you give me liquidity but now i have to keep track of so many streams and so forth some people i will admit that some people may never like streaming that's fine but i still think there's a lot of people there's a big group of category of people who would love streaming but they don't know about it or the um, accounting system the web the world is not set up for them to provide them with this feature yeah so those are the two main so capital efficiency and mental transaction costs for people who maybe they're like rich or something and they don't really care about like extra liquidity they prefer the simplicity you know and if i was one of those people in the category that loves streaming what would i have to do to start doing that either as a project a company or an employee so today if you are a recipient you just talk to your head of organization and tell them to go to app.savebureau.com maybe we can link it in the show notes the idea is you just go there connect your wallet it, it, it also works with safe so you can use it from your safe multisig you put your recipient address an amount and duration and that's it you're ready to go as a sender as a company it's basically the same idea you just ask your employees hey would you like this feature would you like to be paid in time you just request an address and then you go to our same url and it's very easy to create streams and we're actually working to make integrations with more providers where for example we're in touch with token ops which is this cap table management solution and they're looking to integrate Sabre. and the idea there would be that if the Sabre ui lets you create the streams in a very basic way because Sabre is public and source available and many components are also like open source the system can be integrated in any DeFi app so you can create your streams with Sabre, but then if you want more granularity as a project as a company you can just connect your wallet to another dApp, which will give you more advanced features for your particular use case. In this case, capital management, if you're like launching a token and fasting it in real time by the second, then with an integration like token ops, then you could, for example, label the addresses, add your email, add names, and just you know, export to CSV and so forth. We don't have those features ourselves because like we're trying to be the protocol that general purpose protocol that's how it will work and if you have any particular use case in mind that you'd like to use Sabre for let us know we will try to either build the feature ourselves or talk to an integrator to build it on top well yeah from my experience it's pretty straightforward <laughs> and you. the code is very well written and i'd like to know what approaches did you use when trying to build tablier what was your mindset? How did you approach it from the ground up? I would summarize our philosophy about coding 
Sabre uh, as uh, it was built to last. Uh, it was built to withstand the test of time in crypto. It was built to never be hacked. Um, of course, I might be wrong. It might eventually be hacked. I have no idea. But what I do know is that we have given our absolute best to avoid that scenario. Uh, we are, as perhaps we are obsessed about security. We spent 15 months building the protocol. We received seven audits, one of which including from you, uh, which we uh, was lovely working together, by the way. And in general, like, the idea is that we, we do not leave any part of the code base untested and more importantly, not just untested, but like unexplained. It might seem like a minor point on the surface, but this obsession about explaining the code in, in plain English has led us to, to a very robust test infrastructure actually had a presentation at ECC in Paris last week, where I, I presented our test infrastructure. We have hundreds of files and we even, we even invented this mini specification language, although that's a bit pretentious. It's more like a, a technique for how to organize unit tests in, in Foundry, which we can talk about in a bit. The idea basically is to, before you even write your tests, you explain what your function does and you think about all the possible execution paths and you create this branching tree of um, uh, uh, configuration states, what contract states lead to what outputs, what function parameters lead to what outputs. Um, yeah, so at a high level, that's like our, our approach and philosophy. At a low level, we know we're just like Foundry, big time Foundry users. The state review to protocol is 100% built tested, deployed, formatted with Foundry. We believe that this is the absolute best framework for Ethereum developed now because you get to test your contracts, which are in solidity, also in solidity. There's no point of failure. For example, if you're using something like, like Hardhat, you have to write TypeScript. You have to configure Node.js and that introduces points of failure. For example, a big wrinkle with this the approach is big numbers. You have to always convert between JavaScript big numbers and solidity numbers. And you can have bugs there. <laughs> if you have a bug there and your function requires, I don't know, at least say 18 decimals, but because your big number conversion is wrong, it only gives five, 15 decimals, but there's a bug in the contract and it accepts 15 decimals. There are all these points of failures along the way. So by using Foundry, we're all in solidity very close to the core, very close to the heart of the system. And we argue that we have one of the best Foundry code bases at the moment, the cleanest, it's easy to follow, it's easy to understand. And yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I remember telling you when I was doing the auditing that you have one of the best test suits that I came across. <laughs> it was very surprising because it was the first time I saw this type of structure and I wanted to ask you, what was the process of coming up with that type of structure like? We were, I think every developer who spent a lot of time testing is doing something like what we did with the trees, which by the way, we should link in the show notes just for uh, uh, maximum clarity. But I think every theorem developer is doing that kind of thing in their head. So in a way, all we did was to make explicit ideas explicit because when, when you write a test for, 
forget about our approach, right? We like start, okay, what are the points where this function fails? Why are these points when, when this function goes above the blow gas limit? And all, all of these conditions, what we did was basically formalize that into a tree file, which has, by the way, for, for, for listeners, a, our tree files are basically designed with ASCII characters. They look a bit like folder and files hierarchies, but rather than folders, we have conditions and test statements. For example, given the, given the message sender is Alice, then the output should be 10. And that gives you a very clean overview of what the function does. And now to finally answer your question, we're basically, when we started writing the test for Sabre, we were looking at, we come from, I come from, I, I was using TypeScript when I started my Ethereum journey. And in TypeScript, we have these things called describe blocks, which is one advantage. I will grant that this is one advantage of JavaScript that you can use describe blocks with nest, nest your tests. You don't have something like that in Solidity. In Solidity, you cannot pass anonymous functions as parameters to other functions. So you cannot like structure your code in a hierarchical way. So I was thinking, and I, I think I thought about it for, I don't know, a month or two or something. How, how, and I was asking around Foundry and there is basically no solution for this, for like how you can replicate the describe block hierarchy in Solidity. And I said, this basically, I want a hierarchy and I want to provide context to describe statements. So that seems like a tree to me. Like it was a pure like idea that I had in my head. And then I said, okay, let's try to put it in a separate file because that would make it, that would make it shareable with the non solidity team. Like I, because it's plain English, I could share that internally with, for example, our front end team and they could use that for the create stream page where they want to see, okay, what are all the conditions that have to pass for the create stream to work? So yeah, it, it, it was an exploratory process of like, how, how can we bring describe blocks and solidity? And that didn't turn out to be possible. So I said to, to replicate that hierarchy with tree files. Yeah, that's a interesting approach. And it shows that there's always trial and error and you can sometimes not get what you want but there's a way to get around it and for some devs or projects trying to up their security game trying to write better tests or just more secure code what type of advice would you give them we should link to our to my presentation it's to see it's only there i call it foundry batch practices but at a very high level there there are many small tips but like at a very high level, I would say, write different kinds of tests. Don't write just unit tests. Don't write just integration tests. Write, you want to have a very diverse set of attack vectors, as in test attack vectors in your system. And what we do at Sabre is we have four categories, which are further split by two other subcategories. The big four are unit integration, invariance, and fork. Each one of them gives us confidence that environment or that way of attacking the, the protocol works as expected. And some of the actual functions under test, for example, the create stream function is actually tested in multiple 
like it's the same function is tested, is tested, but differently. To give a simple example, we have the uh, integration tests, which we define as any contract, sorry, any, any function that interacts with an external contract, including ERC20 tokens, is an integration test. And the reason for that is there's hundreds of thousands or something of ERC20 tokens. Um, that's an integration test. That's not just a unit test because there are so many ways the ERC20 implementation could rack havoc with your little function. There are tokens which change their balance of function. There are tokens which, change, which charge fees on transfer. So many different things. That's why we call them integration tests. Um, okay, so what we're doing there uh, is that we further split those integration tests into concrete and fuzz. And concrete are deterministic tests that have hard-coded values. For example, you assert that 1 plus 2 equals 3. We also have the fuzz subcategory in which you have non-deterministic function parameters, which are fuzzed by foundry. And here you don't do 1 plus 2 equals 3, but rather A plus B equals C, and foundry fuzzes the A and the B. And in the integration test, this is where we use the branching tree technique. We want to flesh out, okay, what are the, all the, in the concrete test in particular, we want to flesh out, okay, what are the, all the possible revert states of this function? We work our way down from there. And then at the end, we have the successful execution paths. Uh, but we also go in the environments and say, okay, now I want to also call the creation function here and assert some. So invariants, if you, for listeners who don't know, they are expressions that should hold true, that should always hold true in your protocol. There should be no point in time when an invariant should evaluate false. To give a basic example, in, in uh, an ERC20 token contract, you want to check that the total supply matches the sum of all the user balances. If that equation doesn't hold true, then there is a bug. I'm absolutely certain that there is a bug, there's a running error and so on and so forth. And you come up with these system-wide high-level invariants. And then you want to do, you, you generate a sequence of, the founder does this, you have to prepare it, but like Foundry gener generates a sequence of like hundreds or potentially even more, thousands of calls. It calls your protocol and after each call after each run, it goes through all of your 20, 30, 40, whatever invariants and says, is this invariant still holding? And in, in the invariants, as I've said, we're also calling the creation function, just like we're doing in the integration test, but we're like asserting different things where we're saying that, oh, the next stream ID is that incremented by one because the next stream ID should never be incremented by more than one. It should never be increased by more than one. Yeah, to backtrack a bit from where we started, what advice I would give. First, there's this principle of write a diverse set of tests. You want many different attack vectors, as in self-attack vectors, so like task or protocol in many different ways. Obviously, creating categories for those are useful for like things like filtering, you, when you want to generate gas reports, you don't necessarily want to focus on the fork tests, which they may be slow to compute. You just want to get like a quick snapshot. You can target only the unit and the, the integration tests. And finally, what I would do, like a big point of advice is I would, I would recommend employing some kind of specification language. You don't have to use 
the branching tree technique. This is more like entry level, like an entry level approach. You can, I, I can also recommend going for the more advanced languages like Sertora, K framework, even things. There's also like Cucumber Yurkin, which I inspire from with the BTT approach. However, all, as a caveat, all, all of these languages, they will take much more time to learn and research before you can master them. And some of them actually also come with costs. The branching tree thing is literally just a VS Code extension so that you can see the tree colorful and two or three keywords like given, when, then, it, and that's it. But the basic principle is do not leave your protocol undocumented, unexplained. Explain how each function behaves with the branching tree approach or with whatever you want. Just put it on Notion, put it on Google Docs somewhere. Just explain how your protocol works. Yeah, from a security researcher perspective, I can attest to that, that it makes a huge difference. Saves a lot of time and brings a lot of clarity to, to what we try to do and allows us to try to break your protocol a lot faster. But you keep talking about these attack vectors like these invariants. How do you suggest that developers come up with these different attack vectors, these different invariants? Because it's easy to say, oh, try to test as many invariants as you can, but how do you come up with those invariants? When do you know that you have gone through all the invariants you need to? I think as my philosophical background is with Popper and Deutsch, and I'm fundamentally like Epapurian. So I think to answer your question, basically it is impossible to, to know for certain that you have covered all the invariants. So you, the way I approach this thing, everybody can do their thing, but like the way I approach it is that it's, you have to start with the assumption that you can never be sure that you have covered all the possible hiccups, all the possible backdoors, all the possible issues. That said, that is not an excuse for not doing your best possible work when thinking about these invariants. And it's hard to formalize it or explain the process of explaining itself in, in simple words, but the way it goes is that you just talk to your team in person has helped us a lot. You just talk to them about, okay, what are, it's really a question of what are your business goals with the protocol? What do you want the protocol? How do you want the protocol to serve users? And once you have that end goal in mind, basically all the other, the invariants flow from themselves. So it's a really high level, especially the invariants, the fork tests are like basically just look at, okay, like what components do, do we integrate with? We integrate with ERC20 tokens. So we looked at, we tested against USDC, DAI, and whatever other popular tokens we found on, on, on Etherscan. So it's like mechanical with fork tests. If you're integrating Uniswap, you just fork test against Uniswap main contracts. Invariants are like super high level and an emergent phenomenon because they rely upon, again, a system-wide set of rules and, and, but also of this notion of business goals, which I recommend you talk to your team in person. And to give you a practical example, we were talking about, so I was doing demos for the Saber V2 product UI with various people in our private beta two months ago and or three months ago or something anyway like a long time in crypto a long time ago i was explaining how streaming on on Sabre is monotonic as in the function the payment function never goes down okay so if you know i have a 30-day stream and on 
the second day you stream some amount X on the third day, that amount streamed cannot be lower than X. Just cannot. It's, and that was not like written anywhere in the contract. It was a business promise where if somebody receives token, the protocol will never take back tokens from them. So what I mean, so it's like a purely emergent phenomenon business goal that I was talking about on phone calls with people, but there was no invariance for this in actual, in our actual tests. And then after the call, I was like, wait a second, we should test this. We need a test that what I just promised our users, it's an actual, I mean, we have something in Foundry that validates that. So I went ahead, brought the test, and now we have a test that has the monotonicity of the streaming function so that the streaming function always goes up, never down. And it can remain the same, but like never down. Yeah, it is challenging to come up with invariance, but it's, otherwise there would be no hacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. We wouldn't have any issues. And I think looking at things from that perspective, what should never happen, it's a good way to start. How should yeah. I serve my customers and what type of situation should my customer be in? It's a good way uh, to start. I actually have an, an uh, uh, analogy to, to share here coming all, all the way from like biology. So if you think about DNA, like not in humans, because we're like, these big uh, entities, complex, we have big brains. But like think about an, an amoeba or something very simple. That was crafted by evolution from like a long time ago. And the it, it basically has some invariance saying that an um, uh, amoeba duplicates, it copies itself, it like replicates. But even in that process, like where you know, okay, you know what the system level should do, should copy itself. Even in that simple case with the amoeba, there are still copying errors. The point I want to say here is that even there seems to be like a law of physics or like some something resembling a law of physics, a, approximating a law of physics that what you can have is a robust system that most of the time it does its job well. However, you can never avoid small issues, copying errors. The analogy for, for a protocol is that you should strive really hard to try an error and error correction and so forth and so on and so forth to avoid any system level malfunctions like down hacks. However, you will never be able to catch all of those small copying errors and just have to accept them that they are. But the, the reason why I'm saying this, this analogy is that by being so explicitly aware that you will absolutely make errors. You, at the same time, you avoid the biggest errors. See what I mean? Because you know you'll make errors. Okay, let's start with the most important ones first and let's write tests for them. Let's implement that function very, very well and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a good way to approach it. Instead of trying to think, oh, let's eliminate them all. Just yeah. try and get the heavy hitters first. Trying to see what are the they're really bad guys. And after you're done with those guys, you look at it again and try to see if you miss any of those bad guys. Until you can't see any of the bad guys left, even though they might be still lurking around and probably are. And from this biology talk, let's go back to longevity, which I know is a big <laughs> thing for you. What is your longevity hacks, your habits, your practices, 
including exercise, nutrition, medicine? What are what are the things you do, and why do you do them? I just generally speaking, I just love life. I want to wake up in the morning. I want this game to continue. <laughs> this this whole life thing. I, I I have many aspirations. I have a long list of books, papers I want to read, projects I want to build, places I want to travel. That's the lens I'm coming from. In practice, what I do, I, I just have routines, I have systems in place. I'm not by any means an expert on exercise, so I will just defer the listener to Peter Atia. It's my main source of inspiration on this. Basically, just I remember five, six times a week, I'm exercising. Half of those are cardio, so I'm doing zone two, very light running, basically. And half of those are strength training. I'm doing basically an entire body program. I'm not focusing on any particular group muscle, although I do have a tendency to do more uh, hip hinge squats, deadlifts, because they work. It's like they're very time efficient because like you like work your entire body. There's that exercise. People like, I, I know people who are like longevity uh, uh, enthusiasts, but like, they never exercise. So that's not how it works. It's, I, I wish there was a pill for this. I would take it, but we're not there yet. And if you're serious about it, you just have to do it. You just have to put in the work. Just accept that it's, it's like the cost to pay to get both good health span and lifespan. It's not just you live to 100. It's like the continuous daily experience, just feel better stress management, brain health, and so on and so forth. That's one pillar, of course. The other pillar is sleep. I have my aura ring here. I think it's absolutely amazing. It has made me tweak my my routine quite explicitly so I know what I know what uh, what triggers me what I know what triggers a bad sleep I basically cut off all alcohol I do have it from time to time but like never not as much as before uh, when I was not wearing the ring um, I also have the whoop somewhere around here to just give me uh, uh, like a double so I basically analyze myself very well I think sleep is mostly is it, it, mostly a matter of data and, and like analysis because when you're sleeping, you're not conscious. So there's not much you can do while you're sleeping. You have to do it. You have to prepare yourself during the day. And that, that's why I think data that tracks your sleep while you're unconscious, super, super useful, uh, useful to like psychologically help you towards the right path, right? And there are like very, very, various tricks for this. The basics, turn off the lights, get, get some blue light. My, these are for eyesight. So I have my, myopia, but. I, I bought them because they have this very, if you see the yellow tint, I actually see almost no blue, almost never. In the morning, I'm trying to go for like, when I go to the gym, I go in the morning. So I have my blue light when I go out. But otherwise I have my blue light blocking glasses all the time. And also start to make it cool. This actually, I think making making your bedroom cool is the most difficult thing. People talk about it as like, on podcasts, yeah, sure, just get, just put some AC or just get the eight sleep. I try everything. It can also, it can still be hard, especially if you're sensitive to sound as I am. Like if I leave my AC on, I have an AC in my bedroom, but if I leave it on, I sometimes get awoken by the sound of the noise made by the AC. Can you talk a little uh, bit about why it is important to keep your bedroom cool? Here I will defer to, refer the user, a listener to Matthew Walker, but uh, the guy who wrote Why We Sleep. But the idea is that when you, when the basic principle is that when you go to sleep and you're in that phase of like, you put your bed on the pillow and you're about to enter that first deep stages of sleep, your body, what it actually does, even if the room is cold, uh, sorry, hot, even if the room is hot, 
what your body has to do is to lower your internal temperature. And this has to do with homeostasis and brain circulation and many different emergent phenomena. But the basic idea, I think your body cools down by one or two degrees Celsius, probably more Fahrenheit. But anyway, so to, to aid that, it's like a prerequisite. It's like oiling the machine, right? You like prepare your like bedroom and it's like cool. And as I said, it's like sound, it sounds easy, but in practice, it's actually quite kind of difficult based on where you are. I, I, I tried all kinds of devices. Even the eight slip, it's super noisy. Maybe if you're not noise sensitive, maybe it works for you. I, how I use eight slip now is that I'm not using the, the way they typically recommend doing it is keep it on during the entire night. What I do is I just, I just keep it on before and, uh, I just call the bed and then just call it a night and go, <laughs> go to sleep and turn it off. One other thing worth mentioning for sleep, other than the environment, the local light, just don't drink alcohol, also basically don't drink coffee afternoon, but also this is probably the most boring one because I guess people triggered when I talk about this in, especially in real life, having a habit like a routine where you go to sleep roughly at the same hour, basically 15, 30 minutes every single day at the same time. So if you're going to 11 PM, you, you go to 10 30 to 11 30, you're always in the bed during that. A time frame. This is also difficult. I don't find it difficult myself. I'm like, I'm, I'm basically, I'm, I have reorganized my friends circles and met people who are aligned with like longevity goals, crypto folks and whatever. So I don't have, I, I don't find it difficult, but like, I imagine that, I don't know, people who want to party hard during the weekend, they might find it hard. But anyway, yeah, in, in practice, all the studies point in the direction of consistency is super important for sleep, for hormone production. It basically lets your body run on autopilot and it just leads to, and I, I can see it myself, like I, I have much better sleep scores when I have consistency. Okay. So there's those things. And then the, there's the nutritional part where I, there's, it's both food and, and supplements. I have these boxes with four compartments for each box, seven, seven boxes. So one box for each day, but actually before we go to supplements, let's just like briefly state that like nutrition is also important. So you can dope yourself with 100 supplements. If you're eating, you know, McDonald's every day, then it's probably not effective. And it, it might even do harm to eat only bad stuff and combine it with vitamins, which need certain substrates to function well and whatever. But anyway, I, I'm not an expert on that. With nutrition, like my approach is I, I have the 80-20% rule. 80% of what I eat has to be just healthy stuff like vegetables. I'm eating a lot, like lots of broccoli, good protein, eggs, meats, especially chicken, like lean chicken meat and uh, olive oil, nuts. I'm not ketogenic. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing keto, although I have, uh, I am doing low carb. I don't have that many fruits. I might have an apple from time to time, but just very low, uh, not very low, but like low carb much, certainly much lower than the average person in the West. So there's that, but 80% is like that. But I do have my cheat days. I think, especially for like building companies and doing hard, like you're working a lot as I do, I work you know, 10, 10, hours, 10 hours a day uh, or even more on some occasions, your body gets stressed out to a point where like you need that cheat day where you can relax and eat whatever you want. And I have my occasional burgers or something, but like those are super rare. And even then I, I make sure to like, 
hack my way with with basically control my blood glucose even on cheat days and we can talk about those now when like entering the supplements and drugs category and i view them again as i've seen as i've said i view them as complementary to nutrition as i've said if you if you only eat crap you're probably not going to do much with your supplements and drugs with a very few exceptions but anyway i think about this i want to talk about my structure here because i do have a very organized approach i'm a, a software developer but the my basically my core job is software development and i said why not use get to track my supplements because everybody in longevity they like introduce things they remove things they tweak the doses the dosages and whatever that seems like version control to me you just like with code you add some things remove them and then everybody the benefit here with, with this approach is that you can see over time what you added and if something bad happens Fortunately, I've never been there, but if, if you have an adverse bad reaction to something, then you can go back to your Git history and say, oh, this is where I introduced this drug or this is where I introduced this medicine or supplement or, or whatever. And I've been doing this for maybe one year and a half now. And I have this, I, I don't have it with me now, but I have this, it, maybe you can link it to that tweet. I have these seven day boxes and once a month I go to my supplement a locker in my in my home and i've got 300 or something boxes and i open my git repo i i view it with their i'm using markdown and i open it like in a markdown viewer and i look okay this is my morning routine this is my lunch routine this is my afternoon routine my bedtime routine and so forth and i just because i have four compartments morning lunch dinner and and and, and bedtime i'm just getting the, it's like manual. It takes me, I don't know, two or three hours uh, a month. Hopefully in the future, we'll have GPT assistance for doing stuff like this. But for now I'm doing it manually. It's, it's, the, the payoff is very well worth it because I've been also tracking my blood results. So I've been doing blood, like blood tests for maybe two years. And basically everything has been improved. My blood glucose levels are better. My cholesterol levels are down. Better vitamin profiles. My vitamin D is excellent. My vitamin Bs are excellent. Thar thyroid profile also great. And I'm super, some of those are actually direct. Some of the stuff that I take is actually the same thing that you measure in the blood test. I have direct evidence that what I'm doing works. And I also have evidence that my liver, many people say, oh, but you're like taking, I think I'm taking like 50 pills a day. And people say, when I talk to them about this, oh, but surely your liver must be destroyed, hammered. No, it's actually, I have very good results. Not perfect, but very good liver results. And some of the things I'm taking are actually promoting for liver health. Just the fact, like the way I think about like these many pills is that it's like another kind of nutrition. It's like you extract the good stuff from food you still want to have good food, but like you add it, it's like plugins. If you are familiar with the NPM package, Jason, it's like you add a, you have a dependency with NPM. It's an add-on, a bonus. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like a nice to have bonus. And frankly, in some cases, it's also like more convenient. For example, one of my favorite supplements is sulforaphane, which is broccoli extract. But it's it's a particular kind of broccoli because the, the big flower of, of florette, it's called the big broccoli florette, doesn't have much sulforaphane. It's only the the young broccoli, what do you call them? Whatever. The, so the young broccoli seeds, 
when they grow, they have some farrowing. I tried them, I, I ate them, firstly they taste awful, but also it's just hard to get them. Very few supermarkets have them, and if you want to do it the proper way, you have to grow broccoli in your fridge or something or in your garden, which is, I, I don't have time for that. Taking a supplement, which was created by a proper you know company, which is doing like lab tests and so forth, just much more convenient and you still have the same benefits. So farfin is a very powerful antioxidant. It's great for the brain and it's so powerful that it can even clear your body from toxins, benzene from very polluted cities. If you live in a very polluted city, I would recommend looking at sulforaphane. But yeah, generally speaking, that's what I do. I have, I have a very data-driven approach to this and I track everything in a Git repo. And I would say that in terms of distribution between supplements and, and meds, so first I have no disease, but I, but I still think that drugs are still good for healthy people. Because if you think about longevity, it's basically, it's not so much a question of doing something or enhancing yourself. It's more if you're young, especially, and I'm 25. So if you are young, you basically, when you were young, longevity is more a question of like, how do you remain the same? Like, how, how do you freeze your, like not freeze, but, but how do you stop your body from becoming older from where it is now? And naturally, I think everybody agrees that if you don't do, if you don't take anything, and I'm talking about drugs, if you don't take anything, naturally you will decay because that's biology and that's DNA and whatever. You are, were meant to reproduce and then you're like, whatever. With drugs, certain, and I, I, I will mention two of my uh, favorites, and I think you know what I will mention. I'm a, I'm a, a rapamycin maximalist. Because I think the, firstly, the explanation behind this molecule is, is beautiful. It just makes a lot of sense. And I don't see that, for example, with NMN and uh, NR and the David Sinclair kind of path of like work. I think he's a cool guy. I know a smart guy. I do appreciate people dedicating their life to this field, but I, I'm not convinced by the NMN halfway. With, it's basically, it's a precursor to a vitamin and the, the whole thing about NMN just is, is like a tangent. I think, I think it's more a second order effect of something else. So if you do something else, which we don't know yet, what? But when we figure out that thing, then the, it's called the NAD levels in your blood, which are, can in principle be influenced by NMN, but in practice that doesn't, doesn't really work. Anyway, so the NAD levels will can come as a second order, third order effect of that other thing we don't know about yet. Just as a quick tangent. What I, I am excited about is rapamycin because, as I said, the explanation is beautiful. And secondly, the data is absolutely fantastic. For for listeners, rapamycin is, the technical term is called, it is an mTOR inhibitor. mTOR is an enzyme in the human body and actually in all the organisms known on Earth that is responsible for growth. A good analogy of this, imagine you are on a building site and you have your constructors, you have your bricklayers, and you have all of these different roles pe people play in a, on a building site. You still have a, a lead contractor who is in charge of managing everybody who says, go there, you do that. mTOR is like that at the cell level. So when you give it food, mTOR is activated. And it says, okay, I'm going to take this food and I'm going to put it here. I'm going to 
tell this other enzyme to do this. I'm going to tell the mitochondria to create energy and whatever. So it's like a natural regulator of growth. Just kids have a lot of mTOR. The theory goes, and this is where I connected with the theory, is that when... So de deactivation of mTOR is what leads to slowing, slow down aging. And the explanation makes a lot of sense in the context of uh, a caloric restriction and fasting, which actually have the effects in the human body of fasting are, are varied. I, for the record, I've done two seven day fasts and two five day fasts, and they are brutal and intense. And they have different benefits for cleansing your gut bacteria, your gut in general. Also like a good psychological building mental resilience. However, there is a common thread between fasting, long-term fasting like this and rapamycin, which is the fact that both deactivate mTOR. So if your goal is to only deactivate mTOR, then, and your only goal, like why bother with the pain of uh, starving, right? And that's one, one, one part of the reason why I'm studying. The other, the, the other part is that if you look at the data for context, rapamycin has been an FDA approved drug since the nineties. I think it has more than 30 years now or something. And it's very safe for human consumption. Millions of people take it now for a different reason, which I'll explain in a bit. The more recent use case for rapamycin, I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they, re they realized that, hey, what if we only give rapamycin not every day, but we give it only once a week? What would intermittent dosing of rapamycin, intermittent turning off of mTOR, basically slow down aging, slow down growth, but just in the right amount. You don't want to fully slow down growth. If because if you fully so if you fully turn down mTOR. If you take rapamycin every day, and this is why rapamycin is not being taken for other purposes, unfortunately, it has a is is the good old trope of the dose makes a poison. But here is unfortunate because everyday dosing leads to full deactivation of mTOR, and it also has the side effect of tuning down your immune system. And because of this, people use it for organ transplants when when you have a liver transplant or some kind of kidney transplant, then because it's a foreign organism, your body will attack it. Your immune system will attack it. So people take rapamycin in a very high dose every day. So they block that attack. And those people have to be very careful going out and like catching colds and whatever. But anyway, the data for intermittent rapamycin, there is this thing called the ITP, the Interventions Testing Program lead by this guy uh, called Richard Miller in the US, and they have been testing all kinds of... What they're doing is that they're testing anything, any molecule for longevity purposes. They have a very structured testing mechanism. They have multiple laboratories in the US, which have different species of mice. So they, and the testing in parallel also helps with error correction. So maybe if one lab did the wrong dose or something or all kinds of variables, you, you avoid confounders by having multiple labs in parallel. Rapamycin is basically number one molecule and they have been doing this for 20 years. I'm not really sure why ITP is not in the mainstream, not why not everybody knows about it, but they've, they have done amazing work with, with testing longevity molecules and they've tried a lot of things. They, I think they also tried NR, the thing that David Sinclair is talking about, and didn't do much. 
And Rappermeister has basically in all, I, I think I could be wrong, but I think in all the trials they did, Rappermeister increased lifespan between 10 and 20 something percent. And it didn't matter that the mice was a male or female, it didn't matter. Very interesting. It didn't matter when you start the treatment. You can start Rappermeister treatment in, in either young or old mice. And the effect was the same. They Both the young and the old mice live the same. That's unbelievable and super efficient for humans because you, you don't necessarily have to take it when you're young. It's more like a nuance here. I'm taking it because the data still shows that the best effect is when you're starting, when you're taking it when you're young. But still, it's a nice benefit for the overall population that it has that effect. And it has very little side effects. I think exercise has more side effects than aphromycin. Uh, the, the only notable side effect that I had, and I have been taking it for, I don't know, maybe now eight months or something, was uh, what's called mouth ulcers. You have these dots that appear in your mouth, which hurt. They last for two or three days, and you have them, I think, maybe once a month or something. That's how I had them. But now, after eight months, they, they get increasingly more rarely. So I think it's like a dose response initially when you're body gets used to this new molecule. But anyway, yeah, I'm excited about Rappermeister because it has amazing data. The explanation is beautiful. It's connected to fasting, which we know from so many empirical and just also like historical accounts. I'm I'm not religious, but I do I do believe that it's not a coincidence that all religions have some kind of fasting, restraining from food. Rappermeister is in a way, I view it in uh, like a modern instantiation of that, like fasting which is a very convenient, comfortable, and pain-free mechanism to deactivate mTOR. Okay, so, so sorry about the circle rattling off about this for, I don't know, 10 minutes now, but I'm just excited about it. And I think more people should hear about it because it's super safe. And it the way I view Rappermeister is like a meta drug. It can, in principle, prevent diseases just because you're taking Rappermeister. It can prevent cardio issues, heart health issues, all kinds of problems uh, related to inflammation, muscle. There is, in fact, this doctor, which I also follow, his name is Brad Stanfield. He's setting up a trial, an actual uh, human trial. I think one of the first, if not the first human trial on giving rapamycin, like formal. There have been many informal people taking it just like me. There's like a community about this, rapamycin.news, but formal trial for this. And they want to give rapamycin to physically uh, ill old people 50 plus or something like that and see if how well rapamycin will improve their muscle conditions they, they all have like muscle pain so they, they want to see how rapamycin will improve that and yeah uh, i'm uh, excited about it the other drug i want to mention and i will end on this now because i can talk about it for days but very briefly it's called a carbus it also has beautiful data reports from itp not as high as rapamycin. I think it's something between, I don't know, something and 15%. Pretty good. Even like 10, 10% is still like uh, a nice bonus. And what acarbus does is that it blocks glucose absorption in the gut, in your small intestine, actually. So there is this enzyme called, if memory serves me correctly, by the way, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a longevity guy reading on my own on, on the internet. I think it's called alpha glucose. Glucosidase, 
in short, A-glucosidase. And this is a, an enzyme that everybody has in their intestine. And when you give it starch, for example, rice, bread, potatoes, this enzyme converts those starches into glucose, into blood glucose. And it does it quite rapidly. And that's why if you're eating like a big bowl of rice, you are going to have a spike in blood glucose. Acarbus is magical because it says you, it targets this enzyme and says, you guy, stop. It, it doesn't stop, like, it doesn't turn off all the all of your enzymes because you have a lot. It, it does make a really good job of turning off your alpha-glucosidase enzyme as a whole. And the net result is that your blood, it's more about blunting the blood glucose. It's not about not increasing your blood glucose. So, for example, rather than having you eat like a bowl of rice and you don't you rather than having a blood glucose spike to one one 150 it only glows grows to one 110 120 very slowly so you have a more extended glucose output but you don't have the spike and the problem with many diabetes conditions and blood glucose issues is that generally they are caused not by the little increases, but like the big spike, which causes a lot of damages, like damage in your uh, internal system. It, it, it even affects your eyes. So like you, you basically want to avoid blood, like high blood glucose. And yeah, to wrap it all up, they've done the first... So in the whole of ITP, the greatest lifespan increase was seen in uh, a combo of drugs which included it was actually just rapamycin and acarbus i think it was 26 percent and yeah the trick is to you take uh, rapamycin once per week and acarbus with every meal that has carbs especially starch it's still unclear whether acarbus has any effect on things like fruits probably doesn't it certainly doesn't have any effect on sugar so don't expect a carbos to save you from having to avoid sugary drinks and whatever those are super very quickly metabolized by your liver but with complex carbohydrates legumes rice even bread a carbos an amazing drug the only caveat is that it's not necessarily the best tool in a social context because Let's put it this way, that acarbus turns all the starches into beans, in a way, metaphorically. Because it gives your gut more more carbs to chew on, because they're not converted into blood glucose in your small intestine. They go into your you know, colon, and your bacteria have... They're throwing a party with your acarbus. Don't, don't take on, dinner, on dinners out. Yeah, that that's what I do. These are my two favorite drugs. I'm doing I do take other for various purposes, but these are the only ones that I'm taking like consistently. And I, I just think that they are. I think more people should take them because by taking them in advance, you prevent. Basically, the idea is that my hope is that I will never get to have diabetes. Yeah, I think that was a really cool rundown. I feel like a lot of people get put off when they see you with all the pills and. They might think, oh, he has no life. Like, how can you live like that? But it's not actually that approach. Like, it's something you enjoy, something you take pride of. And it's something that you don't have to actually sacrifice from your point of view. So I think that's really cool. And hearing you talk about it, it's really exciting. And I have one last question for you. Is that if you found the genie, like a know-it-all genie, and if you can only ask him one question, 
what question would that be? I'm also really like reading about physics in my free time. I, I have this habit of reading before going to bed. It's like a nice segue to get yourself into just pop a book, close my, my, my phone or what, when I'm traveling on, on a plane, whatever. Yeah. What I would ask the genie is how big is the quantum multiverse, right? So how many, I'm like a proponent of the many worlds interpretation. I think it's the only one that makes sense that can explain quantum phenomena. And I, I take it as a given every day that there are like multiple of us even here discussing different, slightly different, like different things. Anyway, so a big problem is how, like, how big is this world? Right? Like, can, can, you, can you even put a number on those number of universes? Yeah, in short, I would ask the genie, can you describe mathematically the, the entire multiverse and tell me a concrete number of how many states there are? They have to be finite number of states? I guess I don't know. It's that, that, that's why I would ask the genie this. I'm open to any either finite number or even infinity is fine. But even when you say, if I had been given an explanation that this is the, this is the world is infinite, then I would like to see the mathematical model that describes the structure of that infinity, because you, you can still have infinite structures, right? You just like you have to give me like a more definite model that we don't have right now. Yeah, that's such an interesting question because I don't think there's anything other than satiating your curiosity that you can do with that. Maybe not necessarily something you can apply directly. David Deutsch is the writer and physicist. He wrote these books, The Beginning of Infinity and The Fabric of Reality, which I highly recommend. And I mentioned him because I, I don't think knowledge of topics like this, of the multiverse, the mathematical structure of the multiverse and so on, are purely curiosity driven they can be useful in 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 the field of quantum computation the guy by his own admission he said he he in 1985 he invented quantum computers with his paper and he said that the source of inspiration for pioneering the field was thinking about how the many worlds actually work what you can do with them and yeah so that was my point my my reply there that it might seem like just like a fun thing to know, but who knows what implications we'll have for computation, for, I don't know, for science, for what satellites we send in space, what we look for, I don't know, but yeah. Yeah, no, I can see that there are applications that could be there that we don't know about because we don't have the answer. And once we have the answer, oh, we can use this here and we can use this that. So that makes a lot of sense. Paul, it's been a pleasure having you here and talking to us about Sablier and longevity. Uh, thank you for having me. This was fun. If you guys want to have a look at what we do, we are at uh, sablier.com. That's S-A-B-L-I-E-R.com. I'm on Twitter and the company is also there. If you are interested in what we do, DM us. All right.